I'm Janelle Gurley, Director of Science and Programs at Mary Mitchell, and thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Welcome, Dr. Brombeck. It's such a pleasure to host you today for our Nature of Nantucket podcast. Welcome, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to be part of this, and I'm doing very well. How are you, Janelle? I'm also doing well. Really can't complain. The weather on Nantucket has definitely shifted at this time of year, as we all anticipate and hope for. And it's nice to have the downswing of the fall season upon us, finally. Absolutely. Same here in Vermont. (laughs) Well, we are very much looking forward to hosting you on our Science Speaker Series, which will be held next Wednesday, the 26th of October. And you will be presenting... For us, would you like to share a little bit on your topic as well as your abstract and what you plan to share with our audience next week? Absolutely. I'm going to be talking about my research that I do as a high energy X-ray astronomer. Uh, That's a really broad category that just essentially means any astronomer who uses X-rays to study space. My particular niche within that is that I look at neutron stars. Neutron stars are the cores of massive stars that are left behind after they live through their nuclear fusion lifetimes uh, and blow up as supernova explosions. So once we are left with these neutron stars, they're extremely energetic objects. They have some of the universe's strongest magnetic fields. They have strong gravitational fields and I'm very interested in the way that gas interacts with these strong magnetic fields. These are environments that it's impossible to test on the surface of Earth right now. So I'll be talking uh, in my presentation next week about how I study the gas in these extreme environments using methods like X-ray spectroscopy and X-ray timing, studying how these systems change with time. Uh, And and I hope everyone is excited about it as I am. I think X-rays and neutron stars are just great. Oh, we are certainly extremely excited at the Mariah Mitchell Association to hear all that you have to share. And at this time, can you share a bit about your journey and how you got started in this field of work? Mm, absolutely. Uh, I it probably started when I was a young student in middle school and high school. I've always been interested in science, always enjoyed my science classes. I, I think I went through a slew of uh science potential careers. I was going to be a veterinarian. I was going to be a marine biologist, uh, various interests, but kind of related to science. And when I was in high school, I started taking physics classes as part of high school curriculum. And I really enjoyed physics. I think there's something really satisfying about understanding how the world works, being able to predict what will happen when you throw a ball up in the air, exactly how it'll come back down. And through that, I found my way into a love of space and a love of astronomy. I think it's very easy to love that kind of thing. The night sky is beautiful. I grew up in the countryside in Maryland, looking at the stars, being able to see the Milky Way. And it was always fascinated by that. And I found out I could take the laws of physics that I was learning about and apply them to space uh, and So this became a real interest of mine, especially in college. I did a few summers of research on campus. I went to Hamilton College. That's a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. And 
I got to do a little bit of astronomy research with a professor who was there and I was studying supernova and the shape of these explosions that happen when a star runs out of nuclear fuel and doing those research projects really solidified for me that that was a a area that I was interested in. So when I graduated from Hamilton in 2014, I started applying to graduates programs specifically in astronomy and I ended up at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire and uh, once there was in the astronomy track. This meant that I was taking astronomy graduate classes and I found my way into the research group of Professor Ryan Hickox at Dartmouth. He studies a lot of black holes and neutron stars are kind of like cousins to black holes. Ryan was very gracious. I, I went to him one day and I said, I I love what you do. I think it's it's very fascinating, but it, uh, what else is there in X-ray astronomy? I don't know that I want to do black holes. And he helped guide me towards neutron stars, got me started in some of the first research projects that I did, and connected me with a lot of collaborators, both here in the US and internationally, who really helped guide my research path from there. Uh, so that's how I really ended up in the X-ray astronomy side of things. In addition to all of this, I've always been very interested in teaching. I loved all the teaching and mentoring I got to do throughout college, throughout graduate school as a TA. And so it's always been my dream to be a professor, to stay in academia. Uh, and I recently got the chance to do that with starting this fall as a professor of physics at Middlebury. So I'm very excited to be at Middlebury. I'm teaching a intro to the universe this fall, which is a wide look at basic astronomy. And it really is like a dream come true of of many years of school (laughs) leading to this moment. I'm very happy. Well, congratulations on this dream coming true for you and being able to marry your love and passion for education, as well as your love for all things physics. That is amazing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure your students are very, very fortunate to have you as an educator. I hope they're enjoying my class. <laughs> they, they tell me they are. We'll send out a survey at the end of this <laughs> What would you say is the most exciting physics concept that you get to share with your students? Oh, that's a great question. Um, oh, you know what we just learned? Uh, this is in the last two weeks. Uh, this is the concept. Have you ever heard the phrase, we're all made of stardust? Yes. This is one of my favorite phrases for any of the listeners who haven't heard it. Uh, The universe was formed in this, you know, moment of intense explosion that we call the Big Bang. And that really set off the, the growth of the universe as we know it. And present in the Big Bang was a lot of the element hydrogen, some of the element helium, and a small smattering of a couple others, but really very small amounts. So all of the gas and the material that was in the universe in these first early years was hydrogen and helium and the first stars formed out of that material. And stars are undergoing nuclear fusion where they take hydrogen and fuse it into helium and then they can take helium and fuse it into heavier and heavier elements, filling out our entire periodic table with all of the elements present And this essentially means that this process has happened over cosmic timescales, stars creating new elements, living out their lifetimes, sending their gas back out into space that makes new stars, which form new elements. Essentially, every single element that's on the periodic table has its origin somewhere in space, mostly inside of stars. 
And all of that material is what eventually condensed to form Earth, to form our home, to form us. And these elements that seem so common in our everyday life, things like carbon and iron and nitrogen and silicon, things that make up our daily lives, our own bodies, are extremely rare in the universe. And they were formed inside stars. And I love that. And I think it's a a beautiful reminder that astronomy might seem like a very distant science and one that doesn't relate to our daily lives, but it inherently does. Right. It's literally organically who we are as well. It is. I love that that sentence and that statement connects all branches of science or most branches of science that are common schools of thought in education. And as a former high school science teacher, that really resonates with me. So I really love how you tie that together. And I hope that you always share that with your kids and your students, rather. (laughs) I did. I definitely did. It was something that inspired me as a young student to think about. uh, And so definitely a perspective I always enjoy sharing. I may steal that from you from now on, just so you know, but I will always give you credit. (laughs) No, please do. I I certainly did not invent this concept. It it was made to be shared. Fair enough. What is a current complex subject or subject matter in your field that you would like to share with us listeners? That's a great question. Ooh, I have two potential things. Which one should I do? You can do both. (laughs) Oh, I'm thinking I have two ideas here. One is the physics of how X-ray telescopes work. They are fundamentally different than optical telescopes, and they work in a very interesting and powerful way. Uh, The other is kind of a a current paradox, an open question within X-ray astronomy. We don't understand why certain objects look the way they are. Do you think one is more interesting than the other? I'll go with number two first, but we we definitely will explore number one as well. (laughs) Okay, great. Okay. So essentially, if we take several assumptions in our study of space, how massive an object is determines how strong of a force of gravity it can have on nearby objects around it. And so heavier objects have more mass and they therefore have stronger force of gravity and they are able to pull in all of more material around them. When we talk about things that are shining, things that emit light in space, this can translate directly into the luminosity. Uh, that is the brightness as, or the energy emitted as a function of time. So often the, the brightness of the object that we see. Um, this is because if a, if an object like a neutron star is pulling gas towards it, then that gas as it falls towards it is going to release a lot of energy and release a lot of light. And how fast it falls and how close to the neutron star it gets is all that function of the neutron star's gravity. So there's this kind of balance of the force of gravity with the radiation that comes out of the gas that's falling in. And this is an assumption called hydrostatic equilibrium that we can assume for some accreting objects. Now, for neutron stars, this means that there is this limit of the luminosity, again, that's the energy per second emitted from neutron stars, for how bright we think they can get at a maximum value that is limited by their maximum mass. And neutron stars have an average mass of about two times the mass of the sun. They can get maybe a little bit more heavier, maybe three, maybe four times the mass of the sun in extreme cases but we really don't find them much heavier than that. And this puts a limit 
on that luminosity. This is called the Eddington limit, how bright something can be based on the mass on how much it is able to pull towards itself through gravity. So this is how X-ray astronomers have studied space for an extremely long time. We look in the X-rays, we look at the night sky, and we see bright objects. And we do this backwards calculation of, well, let's assume the Eddington limit. This is how bright the object is. Now I'm going to calculate the mass. And this lets us identify objects because when they have small masses, they're probably neutron stars. And when they have big masses, tens, hundreds of solar masses, well, that's probably a black hole, which can get much larger. And this helps X-ray astronomers identify what objects in the night sky are, since obviously we can't go visit these things. (laughs) There are a class of neutron stars that are shining, they're emitting light hundreds to thousands of times past their Eddington limit. So when we observe them in the night sky, they're shining so brightly that we think that they are black holes with masses of about a thousand times the mass of the sun. But in 2014, one of my collaborators, Matteo Bacchetti, did an excellent study of one of these sources in which he observed that it was emitting pulsations in the x-rays. So every every couple, it's actually less than a second, uh, an x-ray pulse was emitted from this source. That's only possible with a neutron star because of their magnetic structure. Black holes cannot emit coherent pulsations like this. So it indicated that this object, which we thought was a thousand solar mass black hole, is actually you know a two solar mass neutron star that is somehow generating much more energy than we understand how it how it's doing that. We it, it essentially defies our understanding of physics, how these objects are shining so brightly for such a long time. And since 2014, the sample has grown to now more than 10 of these objects identified. And so there's a rising question among X-ray astronomers that is this actually a very common behavior? Is this something that we're fundamentally missing about how neutron stars generate their brightness and generate their energy? It's um, there. There is. I don't have an answer for you. We don't know yet. It's an active area of research, right. but it's one that I find particularly fascinating. Anyone who's interested and wants to read more can look up ultra luminous X-ray sources and ultra luminous neutron stars uh, and do more reading about that kind of thing. That is amazing. I guess my question would be, or my statement rather would be that perhaps our technology has limited to this point, our understanding of how, of this behavior. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? I would agree with that statement. I, it's one of the things that I actually, in a way, very much like about astronomy. We are always on the cusp of new and exciting discoveries when we invent new technology. Every telescope set up, sent up into space or built on Earth is an advancement of how far we can see or in how much detail we can see. And so we get to see and learn so much with every new discovery. And it's important to keep uh, developing our astronomy technology in order to answer some of these questions. Amazing. It's amazing the advancements in technology and how they've just helped to give a different perspective of what we thought we once understood or had a really good understanding of. So it's great to hear that there's still active research happening. Mm -hmm. What would you say is one of the biggest myths in your profession? 
that you would like to debunk or that you have debunked? Well, I have a more general answer. I would say this is not my, uh, not necessarily pertaining to my research, but the, uh, my students and I just worked through the cause of Earth's seasons in our uh, class at Middlebury. And I think there's a common myth going around that because the Earth orbits the sun on an elliptical orbit, it's therefore closer to the sun at certain times of year than it is at other times. That sometimes it's closer and sometimes it's farther away. And the myth is that the distance to the sun is what causes the seasons because the uh, the being closer to the sun might generate more heat. We get more direct light uh, and might give us summer and being farther away might give us winter. But actually for astronomers who study and know Earth's orbit in the Northern hemisphere, we actually experience winter when the Earth is at its closest point to the sun. So the myth is already uh, debunked or at least proven false that this can't be the only purpose. Right. So when I uh, when I work with my students in lab, we uh, use you know flashlights and some models of the Earth to show that really it's the angle of the sunlight coming in. Uh, Earth is tilted on its rotation axis. And so during certain parts of the year, the northern hemisphere is tilted more directly towards the sun. And that gives us direct sunlight, which is stronger and more intense uh, causing higher temperatures, giving us longer hours of daylight, and thus we have summer. And then the opposite's true uh, once the Earth orbits around the sun a little bit more. Now the northern hemisphere is tilted away, and so we have more indirect light, we have shorter days, and we give rise to winter. I think that's uh, a common myth and one that's important to know. The seasons are inherently tied to our life on Earth and, and our understanding of nature, and important to know where those come from. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. In closing, as we are short on time, and I have so many amazing questions for you, and I really can't wait to host you next week, because there will just be more questions just brewing till then. But who would you say, or what has been the biggest influence on you during your career path from education inception to where you are now? Mm, that's a great question. Um well, I, I'd be absolutely remiss not to mention my, my graduate thesis advisor from Dartmouth, Professor Ryan Hickox. He absolutely shaped the researcher that I am, helped put me on a research path that I very much enjoy and gave me the skills as a scientist to venture out on my own in the field of astronomy. Also now, as I start at Middlebury, I see how uh, how busy he was, his job managing classes and research students. And uh, Ryan always made it look easy and always made time for everybody. I aspire to be uh, half the mentor that he was to me at Middlebury. And I am confident that you will be for your students presently and those to come. Thank you very much. Dr. Brombeck, it has been such an honor and a pleasure to host you on the Nature of Nantucket podcast this afternoon. And we are so enthusiastically looking forward to your presentation next Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the Mariah Mitchell Association. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the talk. I'll see you then. See you then.